All right, blizzard conditions coming through Minnesota this week. Is this going to be the big one? Is is this going to be the one that this is, makes me finally go ahead and move somewhere else? This is the one that <laughs> they're talking about um, bad or possibly very bad. <laughs> was, now, wait, this was the forecast coming out of Duluth, though. So when they're saying that up in Duluth, I would... I would believe that. Mm, well, if Duluth says it's bad, then it's bad. Our our friends over in California don't know nothing That's right. about this whatsoever. But you know, we 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 love them anyway, especially our friends at Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on Salastina here in a little bit, but uh, we got in the wintry mood this evening, this afternoon and evening. First of all, I'll, I'll, I would like to publicly thank you for uh, helping us get the the Christmas tree back here to sure to the uh, the the old row house here. You know, I, I got it on the bus. My first. My I first Christmas see here. That. No, we got and Dell thought that uh, it was going to be a problem. I had my Christmas spirit, goddammit, speech ready for the bus driver, but I didn't have to give it. He, uh, <laughs> but it's but it's much more convenient to drive with the uh, with the tree on the on the roof of the car. So thank you. Once that again. probably isn't the worst thing that he's had brought onto a bus. No, no, absolutely not. So <laughs> we we brought the uh, Christmas tree home, the holiday tree, whatever, um, and you decided to just put on a few of the classic holiday films and one of them was rudolph uh, uh, a favorite of yours every year why do you return to that particular film every year why do you like to because i feel like i'm five or six years old in the footed pajamas yeah you know, sitting cross-legged in front of the tv and my mom telling me to back up do you think that rudolph is uh ubiquitous these days do you think gen z gen alpha know that that exists I don't. It's know. hard to know. I, it is hard to know. I mean, do they even play it on network TV anymore? I mean, can you see it on NBC or whatever? I mean, maybe on Christmas. I, I'm I'm not even sure. I, yeah. I just kind of know it because it's a part of popular culture, as far as I'm concerned. Well, we used to plan our our week around it. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know when it, when it was just on network TV. All right. Well, I don't know now. You're you're in the elevator going from the ground floor to the seventh floor. What's the movie? Give it to us. Uh, a sweet young. Reindeer Buck is uh, bullied and harassed and gaslit. <laughs> listen, listen. They 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 put Rudolph through it, right? Um, no, at the very at the very least, he's othered. So um, he has a, a a very red shiny nose, and they cover it at one point, and it even makes him talk strangely and all that. You know, to try to fit in. The look, whole thing look was at, fitting Look at in. how we will just put, this is Triloquy, right? <laughs> We're starting early. How, how, how different is the black nose covering the red nose as, let's say, a toupee? Or let me be problematic, some of the some of the um, hair pieces of, of women. Uh, the, <laughs> oh. or, or, or the way oh. that we will just, I don't know, hide who we are because of societal norms. It was a societal norm for the uh, for the reindeer's noses to be black, and the the, the father of Rudolph is the the villain of the film. I mean, <laughs> goodness Comet. gracious! I mean, it's it's so problematic. But I maybe, think it's even. But maybe, well, I, I guess really the question is: Were we really going that deep? Were y'all going that deep <laughs> watching this back in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Is that a contemporary sort of ingredient that we're adding into the way that we perceive this story? No, this because movie? that was happening in the house. 
That, that was happening in our homes. You know, the division of labor, that's women, that's, we need to get the women home. I see, home, I see you know? what you're saying. Okay, so, so the culture of, of, of that was just so ubiquitous, right. you didn't see, you didn't recognize its problematic nature as it was manifested in this Not film. Not at all, no. Well, you know, there, there are, as, as much as we can break down and, and do all of that, there are some musical aspects of this film that I think are, are pretty interesting. The, you know, the We Are Santa's Elves song is, mm. uh, I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a recurring theme throughout the film. It's not a tune that just comes up uh, one time. I, don't, I think it reprises toward the end. Pretty, pretty catchy for, for the people who don't know it. Here's, here's how that one goes. We are Santa's Elves. We are Santa's Elves. See, in addition to having Rudolph going through what he going through, there's an elf who wants to be a dentist, right? Mm-hmm. And they and they given him the work. So he so he is othered, you know, and and they they go off and well, but before I get to that, that melody um every every year we we watch it, I I forget how I'm so familiar with that melody and it reminds me of a little something by uh Johann Strauss. Have you ever thought about the had you ever thought about the connection between Deflator Mouse and <laughs> Rudolph? I haven't because I'm not that familiar with Deflator Mouse. Well, here's that similar melody. To Kathleen Kim, they're the uh, featured soloist. So you know, you 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 hear that uh, that similarity. Maybe a way of teaching uh, Western European classical music through this uh, through this character, through that sort of depiction. At least teaching the melody can be similar to uh, teaching the actual music itself. You know, or the history of it and all that sort of thing. And how to make it your own, because they put it in more of that marchish tempo. Exactly. Or, or, or the faster tempo of, of a, a faster waltz. What would that be? Right. Uh, a fa- what the, the We Are Santa's Elves is straight up for. I don't think it's a waltz anymore. But, oh, uh, right, right, right. Go ahead. Uh, but deflate him. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> um, they're othered. Rudolph. Uh, the what's the what's the elf's name who wants to be a dentist? Hermy. Hermy. You know they they're like fine. We're done with y'all. We're going off. So they they meet uh, a few friends along the way and find their way to the island of misfits. So you know we're really talking about a thing now because I think uh, this was forties. This Rudolph uh, the Red nosed Reindeer. Let's think about um, internment camps. Let's think about what happened in Nazi Germany. So you know an island of misfits. That hits a, a, a little close to home. Mm. I think that's from 1966. Well, whatever year it was, you know, that we 1966 was 20 years after mm-hmm. all this stuff had been going on. Sure. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought of it from that direction. But um, then what role is Yukon Cornelius? 
Yukon Cornelius is sort of the uh, the outsider, the lone wolf, the the entrepreneur, if you will. You know, he okay. doesn't have to deal, and you know, he is looking for he's mining for peppermint. Oh, or, he's or silver the, and gold. You know, <laughs> he's the crypto bro. Oh, the that's that that's the see we're we're writing this contemporary Rudolph <laughs> right now for them. You know, the island of misfits. It makes me think about the band misfits, but. It's different than the, the Jim and the Holograms Misfits. When people, when I would see people in Misfits t-shirts, mm-hmm. that's the Misfits I thought they were talking about. But there's uh, another band called the Misfits, correct? Yeah, it's a punk band from the 70s as well. Well, I, I think when they got to the island of Misfits and, and this new version that we're doing, I would love a Jim and the Holograms uh, sort of vibe on the on the Misfits. This is a tune called I Like Your Style. You know, we need to do this on the island of Misfits. They're having a good time without Santa and all them. <laughs> I mean, picture it. I like your style. You're a little different. They call you a misfit, but you're here partying with us. That could be a thing. That could be a vibe. And that makes all the people that shunned you, now they're the outsiders. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But let's really get to the real issue that I have with this film. Or one of the things that it points out, I saw this memed and watching the film again this evening reminded me of it. It's the fact that diversity being different It's only celebrated when it can be exploited, when it can be commodified, because they didn't care about Rudolph until the snowstorm came and they needed somebody up the front. They were running scared, trying to fight the abominable snowman until he was tall enough to put the tree on there. Let's bring that to the arts. Is more diverse programming for the stage, uh, for the radio and all of our uh, classical spaces, is diversity in those spaces dependent upon its commodification? Is it dependent upon its usefulness to the people who are already in those spaces? I I think that's a real blind spot for a lot of organizations. Um, They don't really realize that they should be just giving it all (laughs) or everything that they can toward that diversity project rather than uh, seeing what it contributes to the bottom line, if that Mm. makes sense. Is that what you're talking about? So and not necessarily um, the bottom line, but if, if everybody loves something, you know, I feel like they figure out a way to make it work. I think that ingredient might be missing for more diverse programming. Everyone isn't going to like uh, uh, an, an opera with an 808 beat, you know, on, on the classical radio station or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to be there. So I think that's, that's kind of what I'm getting at, the importance of the masses having buy-in, despite the fact that what they aren't quite connecting to is the direction that we want to go or, or the direction that institutions allege to want to go. Sure. And I think that some organizations that are in the first few steps of their diversity work are starting to see those growing pains. Mm-hmm. They're starting to get the pushback from their traditional concert goers or listener of why are you platforming X composer more than Brahms right. or Mozart or whatever. And you can show them receipts. You can say, look, we the the music that you protest makes up exactly, you know, single digit hours mm-hmm. a week. Mm-hmm. And it's dwarfed by everything else. 
Well, that's the that's the the stuff you're going to step in as you take the steps. Let's even make a parallel <laughs> with with Rudolph himself, mm. the red nosed <laughs> equivalent of a conductor, or a radio host, or an opera singer, someone who is just way far from what people are used to, and and an individual. You know, do you think there are any? Uh, connections or, or words you know that can that can be drawn there you have a classical radio host who sounds i don't know very much with a southern twang or someone who sounds you know uh you know sounding black is a <laughs> is, is a problematic road to go down but let's just say that you know someone who sounds like um uh, a takeoff or a, a rest in peace or a uh or a Snoop, you know, Snoop, <laughs> mm -hmm. host, you know, that 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 could be a thing as well. But of course, you're going to get the pushback on that proverbial red nose, you know. Yes, of course. Uh, here, so if we're if we're recasting this and we're redoing the show <laughs> sure, here, sure. How about if when Santa comes up and says, Rudolph, we need you up at the front, man. We need your pilot light. We need you. Rudolph says, uh, what what what's your budget? <laughs> if I were Rudolph, I'd be like, uh, no, no, I'm going to take my buddies and we're going to go over here and do our thing yeah. because we got this whole island of misfit toys over here rocking. Mm -hmm. And um, who knows, maybe there's somebody over there that you're not going to get to do something you need to. But let's let's quickly go back to my <laughs> earlier sort of uh, analogy. Let, let's say you have someone who really knows the classical repertoire and they sound exactly like Snoop, audio only. How much uh, of a chance do you think that person would have in the industry, you know, and then we can consider DEI people wanting to do something different. But would that, would that work? Would that proverbial red nose work in, in classical radio, do you think, these days? It's a good question. I don't know. Would it be an issue, you know, because the, the chops are there, but maybe something else is not there you know the well the, that sort of voice obviously the NPR voice. obviously you know there's pushback for well, yeah, that sort of from, thing. from the audience of course correct but, you know right um i think that you have a better shot at being successful in certain markets mm, okay so if you want to go down to atlanta and host <laughs> classical radio <laughs> well you know radio is is live and sometimes there are snowstorms so maybe that means you know just like santa needed some help in the snowstorm mm -hmm. you know some of these stations some of these uh, opera houses and, and concert halls if some disaster happens that's when they pull the person in so mm. you know I don't know how I feel about that either. There's a conversation, you know, you were just saying, if you were Rudolph, you'll be like, no, wait a minute, not so fast, Santa Claus. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, hello, everybody. Happy holidays. Be different, be disruptive, be you, just like Rudolph. Let's go ahead and, and jump in here. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this 
is Triloquy, Opus 179, on this week before Christmas. Thank you so much for joining us. To returning listeners, thank you so much for supporting us week after week and helping us keep this show going. We couldn't do it without you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that challenges the notion of classical music. We take things in the news, we take conversations and dialogues, we take music, some that's been approximated to the traditions of classical music, much of which that has not. And we put it all in the pot together, all toward the goal of decolonizing classical music, both aesthetically and sort of uh, emotionally, philosophically, intellectually, you know, all of those things. Practically, absolutely. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, uh, to check out uh, past opuses and to contribute, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salastina. Salastina has all sorts of incredible programs that they're doing. They have some exciting things coming up in February. But today I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, their young artist program, Sounds Promising. Sounds Promising is an apprenticeship program uniquely committed to young musicians' professional development. The program is designed for young musicians and composers between the ages of 18 and 30. Among the services for these young artists is uh, private lessons through private lessons with Derek Sky and workshops with Salastina's resident artists. Um, students prepare their music for a polished result. This results in public performance, professional recording, and building connections for their future. They have performance opportunities. Uh, they have uh, mentorship and uh, all sorts of incredible things happening. So uh, for more information on Salastina, be sure to uh, visit their website, uh, salastina.org, an organization really doing their part in decolonizing this thing called classical music as well. Excited to partner with them. And thank you so much for your support. We have the one and only Takesha Mache Kazart Thomas in the third movement today. Excited to share my uh, conversation uh, that I had with her a little earlier this month. We talk about opera. We talk about being in the opera profession uh, as a mother, as a parent. Um, it's so great uh, and, and an honor to feature her this week. Uh, we have music sounds of the season coming up in the uh, second movement. Excited about that. Going to have a little job talk in the triloquy this week, but for now, We'll jump into movement one. All right, I'm going to get us started this week with a natural. So uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, folks who uh, listened last week, in the final movement, I was talking a little bit about K-pop, the musical that me and Dell saw Mm -hmm. in uh, New York. And at the end of uh, this musical, um, folks were getting emotional because it was canceled abruptly and and unexpectedly. So the point that was made from the stage from one of the actors was that we have to make sure that we're supporting BIPOC things on Broadway. They they don't survive. They don't make it if the support isn't there. And uh, one of the shows that uh, the actor mentioned that we need to go and support was Ain't No Mo. Well, I'm reading from Deadline.com. The headline is acclaimed Ain't No Mo sets closing after K-pop, it becomes the second racially expansive production to find no lasting welcome on Broadway. That's an interesting correlation that's being made by news media. Mm. You, uh, A lot of people wouldn't automatically approximate an all-Asian cast, a very uh, Korean-themed show to something black. But here we are, the, the so-called BIPOC-led shows not having much life on Broadway. Is this something that, uh, you know, considering your history in theater, is this something that's shocking 
to you to see two productions in a row, two productions that aren't uh, longstanding like Cats and mm. Phantom of the Opera. They just so happen to be BIPOC-led in their own respective ways, and it just didn't make it. Is that a surprise to you? Is that something that you would not be surprised about? Yeah, shows go up and down all the time. Um, what makes me question it, though, is they said that they were that they were selling tickets, though. They did have good runs, right? Yeah. And yep. that reviews were solid. And something that they point out uh, further down in the actual interview section down in the bottom of this is you every I think every show goes is premiered in the whole, you know, from all the production costs. I mean, I don't know. Is that is that a, a thing? In and theater? so and, and so you got to You got to you make it back on the run. Right. Mm. So you got to you, you got to let it go for a little while to see if you're going to make if you're going to break even. It says I, I don't know exactly, but it, it says yeah. both productions struggled at the box office in their first in their few playing weeks. K-pop uh, last week took in a tidy one hundred and twenty six thousand dollars. Ain't no mo took in only one hundred and twenty thousand dollars at the box office. Those sound like uh, I, I do have to admit I don't I'm not in the financials of Broadway, but yeah, considering either. New York City and and Broadway, you know the name Broadway. That does seem that pretty mid. Yeah, yeah. That, that does seem a little bit low. I think one of the points uh, that's being made here is that even though these shows were very popular among their uh, respective communities and, you know, some some people outside of those communities, sure, but uh, that popularity didn't span other communities, broader audiences, as we talked about maybe back in, in season one, what we really mean by attracting the broadest audience. We're mm -hmm. really talking about white buy-in, are we not? And I think that's what we're seeing here. There wasn't enough, if we're really going to just get to it, there wasn't enough white buy-in for producers to uh, to justify keep the, keeping these shows going. Without knowing the financials, it's so hard to know because like they said here in the article, we were waiting for the reviews to come out and that it would catch fire at that point. And that's that highlights the relationship between your theater and the and and your critics. I mean, we kind of do know the the financials, though. I guess we can't compare that one hundred and twenty thousand right, dollars to know, something. I don't know what it costs. Oh, sure. to put it up, sure. though. I don't know every all all. <clears throat> but that. when we when we're talking about let, you know, let's picture Broadway. We're talking about multiple actors who each get a fee. Each of these actors need makeup. They need costume. We got lighting. We got ushers and uh, and ticket people. We got. A lot of stuff set costs more than a hundred thousand dollars. Stage know, managing, build, all yeah. of that, millions, millions of dollars. I'm sure. Was this in a like big Broadway house? Uh, I I saw K-pop in a in a smaller house, and I would still put it in the millions. When you you know, oh, really? add though, we didn't say venue at all, and we're already talking about millions of dollars right. when you when you stack all those other uh, variables up. What was the marketing budget behind it? I mean, were they were that was ain't no mo being marketed to the people who would normally go to cats i mean and that's one of the things that's uh named here so uh one of the interview subjects was uh lee daniels who's a a, a writer on on the show and has done all sorts of incredible stuff uh, in movies and, and television anyway um he's quoted here as saying the thing is that marketing companies as a whole generally don't know how to market for african-american theater because blacks aren't on broadway you know that's that that's the quote there it reminds me a lot of uh, wow. of so-called classical music yeah we're, we're we're getting a few black people in the orchestras and and in the concert hall but at the end of the day i think it's a 
it's a, a similar issue. What do you what do you do with the conversation of how do we market to the audience that we want, the different <laughs> audience that we want? Man, if I had that answer, I would be a cabillionaire if I could figure that it's a, out. It's a question that I've had to think about uh, very intentionally and directly. You know, I, I just uh, was elected to the board of the Cedar Cultural Center. And Damn, one of the nice. things that we're talking about is how do we do that? You know, I have ideas about making sure uh, that there are people in the communities that you want to engage on staff, you know, at your uh, at your institution, you know, first and foremost, having that uh, bit of trust, making sure that uh, uh, people have a, a, a familiar face around the community, around the, mm -hmm. not just the community, the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I've talked about is intentionality around the word neighborhood specifically, you know, and then, you know, once that sort of, you know, engagement is built, maybe there are ways to figure out how to market. But at the end of the day, you know, most of the arts institutions that are mailing me things are arts institutions that, that you would never I, go to. Well, <laughs> that, that, that part, but, you know, also ones that I uh, have been engaged with in some other way. So they just happen oh, to have my address so they know. on file. You know, the Met sends me stuff in the mail uh, because I went and saw, uh, bought a ticket to fire, shut up in my bones uh, over a year ago. So it has to, I think we we're, we're talking about uh, going beyond who you already got, you know, and folks just not knowing how to do that. I think that's the point that was being made here. Right. It reminds me of something that Katie Brown from Classically Black, Black Podcast said, you know, um, that her family had a saying, something like, you can put corn out for the crows. It doesn't necessarily mean that the crows are going to, you know, the crows got to know that it's there. <laughs> I think she would laugh if she <laughs> heard you, because I thought her point was, if you throw the uh, corn in the field, you're not growing corn. You're just throwing it to the crows. Oh. You know, <laughs> well, well, we'll have to, we'll have to circle back to that. Shout out to Katie. Uh, but, right, but, 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 my, but the point is still there. Right. My point being that... <clears throat> You can outfit your staff with all sorts of new diverse hires and yeah. and uh, put together programs with things that are different for mm -hmm. your traditional audience. But if they and, don't know about it, right. what, what good? What, mm -hmm. what good is it? You know, another thing that I was thinking about when I uh, read this article was that, you know, it's hard for me, you know, and I've, I try to be the statesman, as you say, but sometimes it's hard for me to continue to justify support of certain institutions, these ivory tower arts institutions, when I know that they know that they can survive without diverse audiences, without diverse shows. If orchestras, and, and this is my problem with some of the musicians, but if orchestras today all across the United States decided that they were not going to uh, perform any more women composers and any more composers of color, they will likely survive. Now let's stop there. Do you think I'm, do, do you think I'm uh, stretching there? Do you think that the orchestras would survive if they stopped all the DEI nonsense, as I'm sure some people are saying behind the scenes? For a limited amount of time, well, sure. So, what would the what's sure. what's the shelf life of that model? So, I guess um, immediate survival. But they they know that you know for the next ten years, Broadway isn't going anywhere, or the New York Philharmonic, all these institutions, they aren't going anywhere in the next five ten years, even if they squarely you know do that so called traditional repertoire. And I think that's something that they understand, and that must be. Uh, something that's weighed into the decision, you know, I, at least in the case of Broadway, to take 
K-pop off the stage to case mm. to take Ain't No More off the stage because they know as soon as they say the word Phantom of the Opera, it's going to be sold out. Right. So you have to figure out um, when a certain age group leaves. <laughs> I don't want to say dies. Let's just say when when a sure. certain part of your when a certain generation, you know, is is no longer buying tickets. Uh, the new ticket buyers are going to want something more. So how often can you bring out the same style of programming that you've done for the older set and try to expect and and try and expect yeah. to attract a new younger set? Not to make too weird of a comparison, but it just reminds me of when folks used to say, oh, well, you just have to wait until all of the racists die off or you have to wait till such and such dies off. Well, we're not saying that because this folks my age out here, you know, doing nonsense and, and younger, you know, so I, I feel like Broadway, let's, let's stick to Broadway. I feel like they understand that there will always be cultivated an audience that is directly in line with what they know will make them money, what mm -hmm. they know will fiscally work. In some of these instances, it, it, de it deals with what you grow up with. Like if you've got your folks playing Broadway tunes, show tunes, yeah. Uh, Lion King or whatever, then if you're steeped in it, then you're going to be ready for Hamilton when you're a teenager. And who knows hmm. what might be written after that. But I, I think that you, you have to keep offering something new for the next generation coming in because it's not going to be the same perspectives or experience. Yeah. Are there, um, you know, again, with your theater background, are there plays that you feel like if a person is going to be exposed to the stage, they need to see this. Or if, if someone is going to be trained as an actor, they need to study this play. Do you, do you have those that, even though they're, they're ancient, maybe, mm -hmm. that you would keep in the, in the mix no matter what? Sure. I think the uh, Death of a Salesman would be good. Our Town. You know, uh, there's loads of different ways that that can be presented. So how do right we, now that's the only thing that's leaping to mind. But. So how do we balance those foundational things? Because I'm sure Broadway is thinking about well, there are foundational things that we have to put on our stage. How do you balance what's and and even that's you know based that's subjective. But let's just say for the sake of the conversation, how do you balance the foundational, the Cats, the Phantom of the Opera, mm -hmm. those things against the new BIPOC play? that might make you lose money you know how how would you weigh how to make the decision to wow. you know to equitably lean on diversity even though the the dollars and cents might not line up so you're asking me how do i advocate for a money loser to an organization that has a an eye on the bottom line that's what we're talking about here right and that's what we're talking about even beyond broadway i i don't have an answer for you i yeah. don't we, I, I think we have to, and maybe I don't have the answer either, but maybe you would agree that we need to find that answer because that is what's, that's Too what sweet. the, that's what the organizations always come back with. Well, we have to think about the bottom line. You know, it's not going to make us money. I don't know. It's for, for me, I, I guess I can make the argument that we have to reflect our society. We have to, we have to, uh, uh, center something that hasn't been centered for the sake of a new audience. You know, there are people out there. Let's again back to Broadway. This is New York City. It's eight eight million people out there that could be engaged by this space 
that aren't. So I guess that's my answer is that if the programming is correct, if the marketing is done intentionally, you'll make just as much money, maybe even more. And that that more or that just as much will come from a different. Uh, a different community. I was going to ask you about that, uh, setting up the idea that if you change, there will be people who respond to the changes positively and they'll fill in the gaps of the people who leave, right? Right. Okay, so then obviously something was missing there because it didn't happen. And I think that that proves the point that there isn't any sort of flipping of a switch that's going to make it uh, a, a seamless thing to go, oh, now we're doing... Uh, 50% diversity plays or or musicals or whatever, mm-hmm. because that audience hasn't been cultivated yet. Right, right. Well, I guess, you know, and, and look, this is to all of the uh, promoters and ours hat men's and everyone. We, we need to have that answer. You know, we I, I think if we're going to be in this work, if we're going to be advocating, we need to know how to respond to things like that. You know, my my advice, my my words are, make the point for marketing and make the point for just as many audience members from a different community being in the space if you do what needs to be done. Okay, mm. well, we're losing money if we're doing all this marketing and we're still coming out uh, 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 in the red or whatever. Well, you're, you're as you say, you're creating that track record. You're cultivating that audience so that by the time you do four, five, six, seven things that are out of the norm mm-hmm. and you have a bit of an audience who has followed you all throughout that journey, it will only grow. So I don't know, just that, that, come up with whatever answer you want. But if you need one, use that one, because mm. we have to be ready for that conversation. All right. Well, um, thoughts and prayers to Broadway. And, you know, un, unsarcastically, I say that to all the actors, because, again, I can only imagine having planned to be working for the next six weeks and I only have work for two weeks. You know, what, sure. what, what am I doing then? So, yeah. you know, it's, it's a conversation that we need to have and that we need to be prepared for for the sake of those artists as well. Certainly those Broadway artists. All right. Well, um, I was thinking about what sort of music could transition us out of this. So Ain't No Mo, um, as I understand, is a series of sketches um, about people living their various lives who have been repatriated back to Africa as <laughs> as a form of of of, of uh, reparations. That's those are some weird reparations. But I might think about it. I mean, you know, I don't have to have no job or nothing, and and fine, I'll go to Africa <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, so I found a, a a performance featuring Leslie Odom Jr. He uh. Uh, collaborated with a, a very Afrocentric ensemble, the Mzanzi Youth Choir. So this is their rendition of Little Drummer Boy. Something a little different for the holiday season. A little bit of this to get us to our next accidental. To see a newborn king, I have no gifts to bring, that's fit to give a king, You know, and let me just say out loud that my justification of of that sort of thing 
is completely outside of the religious context because if we start having really having the uh, colonialism conversation as it applies to religion and different things, people start feeling away. Mm. But I, but I do think just mm-hmm. aesthetically and as far as the season is concerned, that's a good uh, mashup there. So I, I appreciate that. You know, before uh, we cut on the mics, I said I was going to pull your chain a little bit. Do you you do understand that you know? As people really working for change, questions of, well, why would we do this? It's not making us money. That that sort of thing is is something an example of something that we have to be ready to respond to. I mean, you would you would you know agree that that is vital, uh, a vital part of this work, right? What to be having having an answer to this isn't making us money. Why would we do it? You know, is it a- right? And you're talking about going beyond. It's the right thing to do, right. or whatever. Right. Well, um, I I would say in in my industry, it's part of a reparation. It would be mm. part of uh, a settling a debt or paying back. I guess that's the way that I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Something. You know. So make make the case however you can make it. Yeah. Because there are folks out here that aren't getting to work and there are people who aren't getting to take in this art. I had a phenomenal time at the K-pop uh musical. Wasn't mm. wasn't sure if I was going to like it because you know the theater hasn't always been my best friend, but right. but it was it was great. And and now, you know, if I went, you know, when I go back to New York and I'm looking at Broadway's listings and there's something else that sounds a little different or whatever because of my great experience seeing this different thing mm. i would try out this different thing I, I i just think maybe there's a word for that that i'm not uh you know re- return not returning listener or returning patron or you know th- those sorts of things it happens and it's real with the right type of content on the stage and i just hope somebody at, at, at Broadway's DEI office is having some conversation. I wonder if they have one. I, I need to look at the staff of, <laughs> of Broadway and, and see if that's a department. Anyway, I don't know. Um, shout out to um, all of the cast and creators uh, behind Ain't No Mo. I hope that uh, we see a TV adaptation or something. I'm sure something will come down the pipeline. A Netflix eventually. series. Sure, yeah, something like that. All right, anyway, uh, we're moving on to our next accidental. You brought this one in. What accidental are you going to give this? I'll give it a sharp. I think it's really interesting, uh, all these things that you just said just a moment ago and how it relates to this article. I'm looking at spectrumlocalnews.com. And the reason why I brought the article in is because I, I've seen for the last six months black violins and then some sort of a you know uh the rest of the tagline but it's all sort of the same variation you know uh in in this article it shows up as black violins two musicians taking things to another level so that's sort of a vibe for the for the sake of just making sure we say it the duo is called black violin what you know with without the s I don't oh know, really I don't, yeah i don't know why they put Black violins, but <laughs> anyway, give, give 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 us some of this. Sure, and we've we've uh, featured black violin uh, early part of last season, and essentially what they're doing is they're taking uh, their classical experience and melding it with their background in hip hop mm-hmm. and R and B. And the reason why I brought it in is because here we are seeing variations on a theme of all of these news stories Mm -hmm. for the last six to eight months. They're doing something correct, right? If it's still, if they're able to still pack houses, which the article says that they are, that they're bringing in a crowd, our show is a meal. 
not a snack, mm -hmm. Kev Marcus says. Yep. Okay, so it's being treated as the main event. It's not the side piece, you know, whatever their, their act is. Um, looking down here, uh, we connect all types of different music, but we also grew up in the golden age of hip hop. You get to just peel all these layers of misconceptions away. By the end of the show, the audience is like, damn, I never heard a violin do that. Or see, black guys move and play the violin like that. Your thoughts, your feedback. Well, let me give you this. So the first time I had heard of black violin, they've been out here for a while. Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad and not not even a senior or nothing. I, I might have been a sophomore at, down at the University of Memphis. I heard about black violin performing on campus after the fact. And this is not to no. disparage the University of Memphis or anything, but they they did a, a packed out show at the student center or whatever, you know, we uh we called it and it was lit and people had a great time. They were telling me about it. It seems like that should have been something that uh that visit should have resulted in a master class or some sort of presentation at the school of music but it didn't so it's it feels like black violin has found their audience and they're not worried about everybody else they're out here you know onward onward and upward it brings back for me the conversation i can't remember when we had it about should we just accept the fact that when it comes to musical aesthetic types of content, audiences are going to be segregated. And that's just that. Maybe not strictly racially segregated, but certainly culturally segregated. There mm -hmm. isn't really a chance for that actual cross-cultural sharing to happen because people who want to hear Beethoven don't want to hear hip-hop beats on top, of a, uh, on top of a violin and a viola. Most of them won't, right. Um it might too just be uh, a rebranding, you know, a renaming so that we can get away from the association with classical. You know what I mean? So rebranding by like you, you're saying use of different terminology when it comes to marketing. I these guess. Things or yeah. Announcing these yeah. things. Yeah. As long as we stay away from that. Uh, what, what do the people say? Western art music. Like, don't 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 do that. You know, and, and it gets us back to one of the foundations of this podcast. I say so-called classical music to point out the, you know, status quo connected with that word because when i'm thinking about classical music i really am thinking about an expanse of of sounds and approaches that includes black violin there's just no that's just normal in my mind i guess the question is how do we normalize that for other people how, mm -hmm. do, how do we get them there by telling them about stories like this by reading articles like this and keeping black violin uh, close to the surface. I mean, it's been more than a year since we've talked about them, but um, if they're still filling shows, that's awesome. But let's go on into here, their Black Violin Foundation. Right. Um, because this is a crucial part of the transition and the change in my mind, and that's the education piece. You talk about it all the time. Uh, the Black Violin Foundation uh, was formed to fill the gaps with kids' musical education, Marcus said. They award scholarships to budding musicians who might otherwise not have the means to pursue classical music. Marcus said it also breaks the stereotypes and thinking differently, creating unity, and ultimately, it's about being thankful. So 
we were talking about cultivation. So mm-hmm. they're they're cultivating young musicians for whom this sort of uh, fusion, if you want to call it that, is normal. Mm-hmm. Hip hop and and string playing. I wonder if that's the road forward to you know uh, uh, combat this idea of things not being fiscally uh, uh, viable. Ask organizations, encourage organizations to do the work with the kids so that in 20 years, now you do have this audience. Now you don't have to worry about 20 whether years. or not something is, well, we're talking about kindergartners or, or elementary school kids. Oh, so okay. They're not All buying right. tickets for 20 years. All right. So, All about, right, right. so so if you do that work now, you will have uh, uh, an audience for whom something different is fiscally viable. Now, if an organization does not want to invest in that, then I think it's safe to say that it's more than what's fiscally viable. There's a certain sort of culture that they want to maintain and a certain sort of culture that they don't want to cultivate. Am I stretching there? You know, if an organization says, well, we're not really interested in supporting um, hip hop cello playing because that's not what we do. Oh, that's that's sticky to me. That's questionable. Let me ask you this then, coming at it from the opposite direction. So maybe a production or a series doesn't bring in money. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing as gaining social credit? Is there is there street cred that the organization gets, like buying, uh, like selling off your carbon? excesses (laughs) excesses <laughs> right right so you're saying an actual fiscal thing you know an organization gets a check or they get some sort of tax deduction if they if they do this work social credit meaning, oh sorry so yeah social yeah, credit social so street credit. credit right meaning that people of color will start looking at you as an ally that's a I, I, the answer is yes but I, I feel like that's a generation long thing uh, what do you mean generation long? There are plenty of, let, let's go to, you know, opera. There are plenty of black opera singers. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that all the black people all of a sudden are just trusting what the Met does because there haven't been a, 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 a generation long tradition of black art, black musicians okay. being on those stages, for Got goodness you. sake, you know, uh, fire shut up on my bones. I, you know, I mentioned earlier that was the first time they put a black something on that stage, and that was in 2021. Gotcha. So, I mean, and, and we joke around about how many years for change, but when it comes to street cred, I don't think that's even a conversation unless there's a, a big check being written to somebody being written to individuals or we have that that track record as you always say if 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 one of the organiza- you know if if the one of the big brick and mortar organizations donates a million dollars to x community center in this uh in in this neighborhood or you know to to this emerging black artist who does things untraditionally maybe we can talk about that but I, th- those are the only two roads i see really direct direct financial support or a generation generations long track record wow. of doing the right thing. All right. Anything else on your accidental? No, I'm uh, basically like I said, I just want to keep uh groups like this close to the surface so that people can see that there are successes and that it can be done. Obviously they're doing something right. They said that when the lights go up and the music hits the audience in the chest that they feel it. 
Mm-hmm. So I feel like if it's done correctly, you will make connections with the new crowd that you're after. Well, shout out to Black Violin. Been out here doing the thing for a very, very long time. At this point, the Black Violin Foundation is changing lives. We need more of it. And we need more of the organizations that aren't Black Violin to be supporting folks like this. See, that's the other part. I don't want to lean on this for too long, but conduits, I think, are what's needed. Those uh, intermediaries, if if you will. Maybe that's a, a weird word when we talk about community engagement, but think about the power of X Orchestra giving the Black Violin Foundation $10 million to expand their work, to hire more staff, to mm. X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. That's how the street cred is cultivated. That's mm. how the social credit is is cultivated. So, you know, that that's that that's my answer to that. You know, sure. would, 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 would you not say that that if you know if if your job donated $10 million to Black Violin, that would be some street cred. I mean, would you, and I'm sure we can talk about what projects or what collaborations could happen, but that would, that would be big. Mm-hmm. You know, if, 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 organ, if ra- even radio organizations would think about what it looks like, not for a fellowship or an apprenticeship, come do some work for us, come learn from us. No, just direct support and let the people who you're supporting do the work and deal with the communities that they come from in the way that they know how because they're from those communities. I think it's going to it's there there just has to be a lot of rethinking what support looks like, what community engagement looks like and making sure that it's not transactional, making sure that it's support and you don't have to do anything for us. You know, that's that's how the street cred and the social credit is is cultivated in in my book. You think we're a long way away from that that sort of support, support that doesn't uh require anything from from the communities that are being served, quote unquote. <laughs> You're not getting numbers out of me. <laughs> no, I'm not. I didn't ask you a numbers question specifically, but do you think that concept is just way left field when it comes to um, any sort of nonprofit arts organization? Are, oh, are, are we there? That That's left field? I, or are we no, there? I think that's definitely something new. <laughs> that's very definitely new. But uh, but, but just just make me, uh, give me the feedback so I know I'm not just crazy. That That does make sense, right? Organizations, Supporting artists on the ground like Black Violin who know how to serve the communities that they have always been serving. If they have the means, that would be awesome. Come on, these organizations have the means. I mean, I'm, I, I won't. I won't talk these, about NPR, but these, it's a right. it's a it's okay. some organizations out oh, here with those found, organizations with, with uh, what do you call it the the pot of money that you draw the interest from. Uh, uh, they have an endowment. endowments. The, they are the, endowed. These, these folks have endowments, you know, and, and let's take it away even from the arts organizations and the radio stations. You got all these colleges, you know, think about the endowment of a Harvard University or a Yale and what they could do when it comes to directly supporting uh, artists, when it comes to uh, grant funding and, and all that sort of thing. I talk all the time about what it looks like to take the applications away and just open the piggy bank, figure out how much money you can give away every year to last for the next 50 years. You know, we, we talk, we, we, we have these financial sort of conversations to keep uh, foundations in place in perpetuity. What if everything doesn't need to last forever? What if, you know, a CEO says, okay, we have X million dollars in the bank. We can give away this much of it every year. And in 50 years, we'll be out of money unless the development department does its job, which, you know, I think that's a conversation that that ups their game and that mm-hmm. makes them uh, uh, come to the next level. Anyway, 
I, I just want to make sure that that point is being made. The option of directly supporting, you know, we don't know how to market. We don't know who these people are. Well, you can identify people who do and and support them and then and back up and let them do it. Let them do. I, I think that would that that would that would change the game. I hope more people try to explore that. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and uh, transition into the second movement with a performance by Black Violin. We're staying with the holiday theme. This is their rendition of Carol of the Bells. Hope you all enjoy little music to get us into movement too. To the chase real quick before we before we talk about our second endings for this week. Aesthetics come with associations that some people just don't like thinking about in their classical space, mm-hmm. in their concert hall, on their on the radio show that they listen to. They just a certain type of beat or a certain type of something is their music, or that's what they listen to, or that's mm-hmm. what people who uh, uh, drive X, Y, and Z cars are are banging out of out of their windows. Uh, mm. I hate just reducing everything to racism all the time, but it, it really that's that's really what we're that's really what we're getting at. You know, when we talk about K-pop and ain't no mo, when we talk about um, organizations acting like they don't know how to market to these communities, uh, you know contextualizing certain things as risks, you know, risky programming or or whatever. I, I think we're getting down to that, down to racism, at least as it applies to hip hop, so-called classical fusions. That's you, really just what it is. You know Mannheim's theme roller, right? I don't think so. To my ear, that little snippet that you just played is not very far off from Mannheim's theme roller, which is a a... a classically trained band that added all sorts of electrics and electronic drum pads and and they give you like a techno version of carols and people eat it with a spoon okay you're gonna get angry emails no matter what i know you put Mannheim. I am. Yes, you put Mannheim with with, with something like that oh. on, on the radio. <laughs> what I say. You put, you put Mannheim Steamroller um, on the radio. Would would you expect honestly? Would you expect more of the uh, the upsetness than usual, or would would people eat it up as, as you're saying? Oh, jeez, that's a great question. I don't know if the appeal is still there. Um, they still tour, so um, I know that they're doing it live. But because there are people um, who do know who they are, you know, yeah. that happen to be listening to classical radio. Let's just say this: you're not going to have any new folks. <laughs> you're not. I, I don't think that you're going to draw in very many new listeners with it. You'll satisfy a core. Oh, interesting. So, do you think it would? Uh, is it an, an aesthetic that could uh, grab the attention of the new listener? Oh, I wasn't expecting to hear this. 
on this station. That's cool. <laughs> you know, it seems like you don't know them and this is cool. If, or you do know them and it's, oh, what are they doing here? Right. Know, what are they doing? If on all this? the stars align, then yes, that's possible. It's it's an outside shot, but yes, it's possible. Well, later on this, well, after after we get done recording, I'll, I'll uh, you can show me some Mannheim steamroller oh, and we'll see if I'll be a returning listener or not. We'll <laughs> and see. We report back <laughs> next week. <laughs> all right. Anyway, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are sharing a piece of music we've been spending some time with this week. I'm going to go first and I'm sticking with the holiday, holiday theme. So, you know, Mariah Carey, you know, jokingly, unjokingly referred to often as the Queen of Christmas because of the song All I Want for Christmas is You, a song that was only outplayed by what? Trivia question. It's the number two grossing song of all time. Do you remember the number one? She mm. was dethroned. I think was it three Adele? years ago. Adele or no, you told me, but I forgot. Old Town Road. Oh. Our boy Lil Nas X. Very good. You know? Anyway, so people are tired of, of all I want for Christmas is you. <laughs> I think are they? That, I think it goes without saying. She's people, number one on the billboard again. Yeah, of course, because it's the holiday season. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and every Dillard's, oh, I don't know if Dillard's <laughs> is a store, every Macy's, yep. every whatever right. is playing the song. Anyway, so People love to hate on this song. Oh, I'm so tired of hearing X, Y, and Z. And uh, and I get it. Me and Dell had the TV on, just the music rolling, holiday music rolling as we're around the house doing something. And I hear a Mariah Carey holiday tune that I hadn't heard before. It was very classic Mariah. And uh, I've been returning to it uh, all week. It's called When Christmas Comes. I want to share a little bit of it here. I know someone, uh, an arts administrator who on the side has a, a Mariah Carey podcast. I need to uh, go consult those guys. But, you know, first things first, Mariah Carey, I mean, the Lifetime Achievement Award that mm-hmm. she is going to earn when when that happens. Oh, my gosh. Every time I just hear that voice, I think about the years that we have had, you know, what she has given the world. Anyway, I think about composers who, uh, you know, I think Joe Greenstein was talking about this a couple of years ago, how everyone, you know, when when he dies, change is going to be the piece, you know, <laughs> that the, the piece people know. I feel like when it comes to uh, just, you know, musicians in the limelight, so-called classical or otherwise, it's so easy for us to just put them in the one box of this one song that we love talking about, how tired we're listening to, and not recognizing that there is a whole repertoire, a whole catalog out there of stuff that is just so joyous. Man, I love listening to this song all week, and it's 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 got plenty more time in my earbuds and on my speakers between now and 
and uh, the 25th, maybe even a few days afterwards. That that aesthetic, where would you put it? Maybe it's not bedtime music or maybe it's not, uh, you know, early morning music, but Christmas party or, sure. or just scooting around, as you say. Where would you put this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, that's definitely got an early evening vibe to me. Mm-hmm. When, what year was that released? Uh, 2010, I think it says here. So, and All yeah. I Want for Christmas is You came out in the 90s. That, that's that's age old. Okay. Uh, let me let me let me fact check. But okay, so my question is: um, Is there something that's going to dethrone? <laughs> is it possible to take out All I Want for Christmas is You? Well, like I said, Old Town Road did, but as far as holiday music, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. No time soon. Uh, All I Want for Christmas is You was 1994. Wow. Um, by, the, by the way. So it's, it's been doing that for a while. It, it's, it's been, we've been listening it listening to it for a generation now. And Mariah's <laughs> been going cha-ching yep. every oh, yeah. year. Oh, yeah. But anyway, When Christmas Comes by Mariah Carey, go check that out. I've enjoyed listening to it, and it's definitely put me in the spirit. Here's here's a little bit of the end of the track to get us moving on. She good. Mm. Shout out to Mariah Carey. Love it. Queen of Christmas. And not just for All I Want for Christmas is You. It'll probably be Mariah that tops All I Want for Christmas with You with something else. She has to, it'll probably be a new Mariah track. And we'll and we'll buy it and we'll love it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Every year. what you got this week. I wanted to share something special this week. It's it's not necessarily something that I've been listening to a lot the last few weeks, but it comes around every winter solstice for me. Um, let me ask you this before we get into the music. Do you, do you remember like a core group of friends? Did you, did you have people that you went to kindergarten through high school and on with? Not many, but some, definitely a few. Because, um, the, uh, the, the lead vocalist of a band called Free, Fleet Foxes, his name is Robin Pecknold, mm-hmm. and he wrote a song called White Winter Hymnal. Uh, at first, it was something that they wanted to open their shows with, and it opened their first record. But the lyrics do have some meaning in that he was talking about uh, the the feeling of having that core group of people. They're not even all friends. You're just in this group together going through school and watching some of them peel away, you know, and how they change and uh, some not for the for the good. Um. The music goes along with a video that Robin's older brother did in Stop Motion Clay. And it's charming in its own way, but as you listen to the lyrics, there's an old man turning a wheel and you see stars and the moon go by in the sun, you know, and and it gets more and more rapid. And it makes me think about the people that I used to have in my life Hmm. and think about where they are now and wonder if they remember the times like I remember them. Uh, It's called White Winter Hymnal, and it starts with a sort of a a nice introduction to a round, I guess you could say. This is Fleet Foxes. Was following me, I 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 was following me,
So what's the association with uh, uh, the solstice, with winter solstice? It's the, it's the video, that old man turning. It's almost like he's turning time. And, you know, we're, when, when this podcast comes out, it will be the, uh, the, the solstice, morning yep. of the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering if, you know, that's got you messed up and, you know, uh, mercury, mercury retrograde starts in mm-hmm, early sure. January, yeah, yeah. you know. And uh, did you ask why this reminds me of the solstice? Yeah, or just what the association is, you know. Yes, this old this idea of an old man controlling time, hmm. and how as we age, it seems to go by even quicker and quicker and quicker. Are you familiar with the group Pentatonics? Mm-hmm. Okay, they did a cover, and it has over five times as many views mm-hmm. as this one. Yeah, what, what does that what does that say to you? Why is it this one that you return to, and not the? I guess the more contemporary it would have to be the more contemporary. Uh, uh, arrangement or, or performance of it. Because that's the one that I fell in love with first. Yeah. When this album came out in tw- 2013, uh, it was uh, it was a CD then. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> so sure. It, was, it, it stayed in the CD player for a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just where my heart is. Um, and not to say anything against pentatonics. Of course, or, because because I guess it just reminds me of the conversation of how do we get new audiences? Well, you know, mm. this the, the 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 version that we just heard, you know, on YouTube, 24 million views. Pentatonics version has 101 million views. Mm-hmm. If we have the room, if if you, you know, have the room to uh, put on a radio show, this song, with knowing that the pentatonics version uh, it, it would would knowing that that would grab a few, probably a few more listeners if we're just taking this bit of of YouTube data. Would that sway you toward playing the pentatonics? Of course. Or would you? Or or would you? You would not. You know, stick to your guns and say no. This is the one that maybe folks need to hear or be exposed to. I would encourage people in the break. I would encourage people to go and hear the original. Uh, just as I do whenever I hear a white band cover a black band's song, <laughs> go and check but, but out you, the original but you too. Apl- but you would play ball and 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 expose folks to the pentatonics sure. version. Okay, right? Um, because you know I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to hit the widest possible amount of ears, and if the pentatonics hmm. one is going to do that, then it would be silly. <laughs> That's a very mature way of of doing that. I mean, I'm sure you know. People who would not take that approach. What about a mashup? You know? It's only a two and a half minute song. What if you did a mashup? I guess that's possible too. Hmm. Well, really, really cool song. Here's a little bit of the uh, end of a White Winter Hymn. No, are you going to do pentatonics? No, we'll, we'll we'll stick with the fleet. Oh, okay. A little bit of the end of it here. Scarves of red tied round their throats To keep their little heads from falling in the snow And I turn round and there you go And Michael you would fall and turn the white snow Red as strawberries in summertime Kind of feels like almost an autumnal song to me But it's cool that there is the winter solstice uh, association They They say you're supposed to uh, light a fire or, or do a bonfire or something hmm. on the winter solstice to coax the sun back. You know, it's going to be a little um, 
blistery or blustery, I'll say, say here in Minnesota. So I don't know if we're going to be hey, outside. If you want to stand out that. in a blizzard to, to light in the, the Hey, the but solstice. you know, do what you got to do to get the sun to come back because right. damn. You know? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, that's cool. Thanks so much for sharing that. Well, we're getting into our third movement. And this week's third movement guest is the one and only Takesha Mache Kizart Thomas. I met uh, Takesha at the Opera America conference. Uh, it was here in Minneapolis, uh, whenever that was, maybe June. Or, or July. Anyway, mm. um, I was uh, on a panel and uh, Takesha and I shared the stage. I love the ideas that she was bringing to the table. We had a few conversations uh, after that uh, convening and um, found a time for uh, for her to come onto the show. I'm reading from her website here. It says, Takesha Mache Kazart Thomas is worthy of all superlatives with a breathtaking mastery and unflinching portrayals of vocal flexibility that enables her to acutely pass from a cheerful, murmur to a firm luminosity. She's one of the many incredible black opera singers out here doing her thing, and she brings something very unique to the table. So we talk about her career. Uh, we talk about parenthood and uh, the opera industry. Uh, we talk about speaking things into existence, speaking love to yourself, and lots of other things. So to get us into my conversation, we're going to hear Takesha Mache Kizart Thomas sing a little bit. This is uh, Takesha's rendition of Tuchelevanita from Verdi's Don Carlo, a really incredible uh, example of her incredible voice to get us into my conversation, an incredible conversation. Hope you enjoy. So I just won a major competition in Germany. I won many competitions, actually, and I definitely suggest that for people who are striving to make their way in this industry to sing for as many people as possible. But I was presented with this opportunity while I was still a resident artist at the Academy of Vocal Arts in Philadelphia. And obviously, you know, a young singer taking on all the challenges, wanting to take advantage of this moment, I said yes before I looked at the score. (laughs) 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 And I looked at the score and I said, I need help with this. I pride myself on being an immaculate musician, right? I've been singing since the age of two from a very Mm -hmm. musical family and loved learning new things. 
and wanted the opportunity. So I took it to my coach at the Academy of Vocal Arts and he said, absolutely not. I don't want to learn anything I don't already know. (laughs) (laughs) And I had an entire swath of coaches at the Academy of Vocal Arts who were like, yeah, no, I'm not helping you with this. This is just ridiculous. This is too much. (laughs) (laughs) So I contacted the Kamafi and Harmony and I said, I really need help with this. And they flew me out and I worked with a repetiteur in Germany prior to making the debut. And if I had not had the support of that community and of them believing in me, I would not have been able to have flourished in that opportunity. Mm. And so I am a Christian. I am a believer. And some of the things, as you said, is such a scandalous piece. Some of the things in the opera, there's a fellatio scene. And I felt that it was my opportunity to do something with it in a tasteful way. Because there were certain things that I was not about to do. I was not about to be naked on stage. Like I was not about to actually be doing any of that. But it was a part of that character and what she had lived through in that moment. She was British royalty or connected to British royalty. It was a real story. So this was a real human and wanting to bring her story to light. And it was such a wonderful opportunity as an actress as well, mm-hmm. because we saw her in her moments of youth as well in her as well as in her moments of decline and desperation. And I was surrounded with amazing musicians and amazing singer colleagues and an amazing director who inspired me to make what I wanted to make of the piece and to do it my way. And it was a huge success and it led to many other opportunities. And I said to myself, this is the most difficult thing that I will ever learn in my life. And from this moment on, everything else will be a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. And it was and it is. And I understand what it means to delve into the difficult moments because there's always triumph on the other end. You bring up a really good point when you talk about the necessity of opera being, uh, you know, the having the ability to act as as yeah. well. You know, there there are very few other classical arts where that's the case. I wonder how you balance, you know, standing in your values and your beliefs, um, and becoming someone else on stage. Yeah. How, how how do you engage that balance? Yes, I have to say it is so exciting to be. I guess what they call these days a singing actress. So I sing various genres of music, not just opera, but I've done Broadway, I've done jazz, I've done gospel, I've done pop. I mean, when I was younger, I wanted to be the next Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) in every moment, I looked at these people and what they became through these songs, because singing is not simply about melodious tones, right? Right. It's about portraying a character, portraying an emotion, even if it is for a moment, in a Whitney Houston, give me one moment in time. She's talking about how these moments are transformative for us. And to be able to take someone, a listener, an audience member on that journey of transformation is super exciting to me. But at the end of the day, as I said before, always making sure my voice, because I am the vessel for that message, always making sure that I am at the center of that storytelling, that I don't lose myself, that I don't 
do things that would not make me proud or Mm -hmm. comfortable or willing to share with others. And I think that that's a line maybe that some other people may not have. They just do it all. But I definitely definitely have made a choice of saying, it's interesting, Garrett, every single operatic production that I've ever done, almost a majority of them, I've had some sort of nightgown on. Hmm. There's been some sort of outfit that was intimating that there was an intimate experience happening. And I made sure and I make sure that my mother, if she's available to come with me to every single rehearsal, (laughs) she's at all of the performances. Now that I'm married, my husband comes to my rehearsals and my performances. And when people know that you have a community of support around you, there are certain things that they simply won't ask you to do. There are certain things that they simply won't say to you Mm -hmm. because there's a level of protection a hedge of protection around you. And so when you're trying to make those difficult decisions because the opportunity presents itself, make sure you have that community around you who is willing to bolster you and support you. Because at the end of the day, those opportunities will disappear, but those people will last forever if you do it right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and you know, when it comes to more contemporary opera, it's not all about the uh, the scandalous. You know, you you mentioned how uh, many people find difficulty just musically with things that they don't know, especially when it comes to opera. I wonder, you know, what your ideas are on contemporary opera generally. You know, Carmen and La Boheme, that it's it's one thing to talk about those operas, but is there space uh, when it comes to developing new audiences for the more contemporary pieces that are out there? Oh, there absolutely is. I'm currently working on several different projects under my company, The Mache Legacy. And the whole point of me creating this company was to produce and develop works that reflected me, my experience, and even my daughter's future experiences, allowing herself to see herself in positions of glory and honor and grandeur and love and joy and peace. And these new operas are primed for that opportunity, right? Mm. We're able to take the stories that we have from our ancestors, as well as those today, and put them up on stage for audiences, share them with our communities, engage our communities, allow them to even help us to create these works so -hmm. they can see themselves reflected. And there's no more poignant or ripe opportunity than right now in order to do that. I think we're at a time, well, not I think, I always say this, the pandemic presented many wonderful things in the midst of destruction. Right. And we, as people of color, as Black people, as women, as young people, as old people, as whoever we are, we have to make sure that we take advantage of this moment before the pendulum swings. We have to make... Go ahead, yeah. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, we just have to... We have to make sure we are doing as much as we can and as much good as we can before the opportunity no longer presents itself. Mm -hmm. And your use of 
words like legacy and ancestors. It, it reminds me of some of you know your ancestors. You're you're uh, very uh, upfront about you know having relation to muddy waters and and Tina Turner. I mean that's huge. I wonder what's been the significance of those connections to your career. They weren't opera singers after all. No, I also have connections to legendary gospel singers and other blues singers and rock and roll instrumentalists and performers. Wow. And for me, it did nothing but inspire me to know that I was already where I needed to be. Mm. And I was giving voice to the legacy that continues to grow inside of me. As we know, we come from a long line of people who did not have an opportunity to see the fruits of their labor. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Muddy Waters, the man who literally influenced popular music as we know it. And when we look at his monetary or financial legacy, does that truly reflect, reflect what it should? And so everything that I do, I try to take these lessons from our ancestors and build upon them so that my daughter and future generations of me can build upon me. And if we constantly call out to them and we constantly acknowledge them, we keep their spirits alive. We keep their impact alive. And we also keep those viable connections among our community here and abroad alive. I've met so many people outside of the United States who are super excited about Muddy Waters and Tina Turner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're like, oh my gosh, I've been to Rolling Fork, Mississippi. We're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) a small town in the delta of mississippi because this man had a dream and he saw himself in a place where that dream was not able to come true Mm. so he ventured out and if i can't be inspired by that how can we be inspired by anything we look in these history books and we read other people's stories but we need to look at our own lineage and our own ancestry and acknowledge the greatness that is there and when we look at our own lineage in that way, there's no denying that music has been a part of the lifeblood of our story as as yes. Black people, as members of the diaspora. Yes. With that said, for so many of us, it was certainly the case for myself, going into the Western classical musical arts was something new. Many of us are first generation uh, in that regard. Is, is that your story? So I've been singing since the age of two, sang all sorts of gospel and popular music. And then I went to a church called the First Baptist Congregational Church. And I've been in church all my life, but this is one of the first churches that was as large as it was and as diverse, musically speaking, Mm. as it was. Our pastor and our first lady actually met each other at Music Conservatory. Wow. We have one of the most legendary pipe organs in the entire world. And we had choirs from little children to older adults singing anthems and spirituals and gospel music and huge orchestras to create the Messiah, which happened to be my first classical performance at the age of 13. And if I had not had that influence, the continual influence of the church, because it wasn't just one day I came to First Baptist. I've been a part of the church ever since I could breathe, hence me Mm -hmm. having the opportunity to sing at the age of two (laughs) and understand that my faith and my gift 
is tied into that expression of who I am as a person and who we are as community. And being able to know that my voice could do so many different things. Many times I listen to other singers in their interviews and they say that one day this person inspired them to sing. That is not my story. What inspired me to get into classical music was my own voice. Mm. And a teacher at Whitney Young Magnet High School, the same alma mater of our former First Lady Michelle Obama in Chicago, that teacher, Ms. Flora Robinson, who is now one of the ancestors, saw the ability of my voice to do many things. She gave me opportunities to perform. She found me my first voice teacher. And if it had not been for her, at the age of 13, seeing more in me, this trajectory would never have happened. And all of these, I want to be very clear, are Black people. Every single person I'm talking about is a Black person who saw, I remember my first lady from First Baptist, she's like, I know you're going to debut at the Met one day and I'm going to be right there. And when I made my Metropolitan Opera debut, the entire sanctuary celebrated it. Wow. That's the sort of community we need to have. And that's the sort of community that we're losing, unfortunately, and we need to continue to cultivate. I wonder if you'll speak more to that, losing that community. What, what do you mean? We're not as active in our churches. When you go to mm. churches, there aren't many, quote, young people there. When I was growing up, we had these huge youth choirs, like Soul Children was a big, big deal. Walt Whitman and Soul Children. I come from Chicago. So there was a huge gospel music movement. I was a part of Ricky Dillard's New Generation Chorale, who is still going on to this day. But it was a part, more a part of popular culture. People wanted to go to church. I've been trying to get us to go to church and they won't even let us in because my baby is not five years old yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because of the pandemic. <laughs> and you just have to create those spaces for yourself. You have to create those opportunities for yourself. And I look at the Machine Legacy being one of those opportunities. If it's not existing in the moment, you have to make it happen because it's worth it. And you've made so much happen since you know Aww. your your early years. I mean, we've we've talked about the the origins. We've talked about your professional debut. And if folks look at your materials, you've sung all sorts of stuff all over the world. It's so Aww. easy to see that as a um, a sudden sort of professional flip of the switch. But I imagine it was a gradual growth over many years to achieve what you have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not done yet. I mean, I still have course, more to yeah. go. <laughs> There's so much more I want to do, but I'm at a point in my life right now, Garrett, where it is even beyond me personally and what I can do. I want to still perform. Yes. But I really want to try to galvanize change in this mm. industry. I don't know necessarily why the trajectory led me to classical music, but I'm here. We're here and it is important for us to be heard and seen and acknowledged and celebrated. And if I can do that for myself, I want to do that for as many people as possible. When it comes to the master classes that I do, when it comes to the work that I create and the work that I support and perform, it's essential for, I was actually talking to a mentee of mine the other day and she was going through a moment where She's a master's student 
and she is at a crossroads. She's about to graduate and she has no clue of what she's about to do. Mm. And she's frightened and she's scared. And her entire career up until this point has been filled with so-called professionals who have not supported her development as an mm. artist. All of a sudden, they don't know what it means to even, you know, teach a, a black person with a voice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so disconcerting to me because I think the whole point of higher education at many times, it seems, is to completely squash the joy in everything that you do. We all came to this industry because we were doing something that lit us up, Right that inspired us, that inspired other people when we did it. We were filled with joy and love and light. And then we study and we try to become perfect. And that joy is annihilated. And if we are going to be who we are or who we need to be, we need to continue to ignite that joy within ourselves. Mm hmm. And when we talk about, you know, creating the spaces where folks can do that, you know, change in the industry, conversations mm -hmm. on representation and those sorts of things are so important. But I, I, it's, it's been interesting for me to see how that conversation itself has grown and become more nuanced. I read an article uh, uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, the need for the classical industry to really begin to engage the specific needs of parents, of mothers yes. in the field. You know, I wonder if you can uh, speak to the intersection of those sorts of specific needs and what the industry requires. I'm specifically thinking about travel with, with a young one. I don't imagine flying from Chicago to Melbourne to Paris to, you know, yeah. Buenos Aires is so much of an option for you these days. <laughs> or maybe it is. Well, I don't know. <laughs> and also, my child has just started school. And what is that going to right. look like? I have exactly. no idea. <laughs> I've been talking about this. I have a parenthood initiative that I'm working on. And I think the main issue with what we're dealing with in the classical arts is that we're always trying to find younger audiences, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that always seems to be the issue. We need younger people. We're going to find the 40 and under and all of this other wonderful stuff. However, if we're going to strive to connect with younger people, we need to make opportunities and inroads for them to connect with us. If you have performances that people with children can't even attend right. because they have to take care of their children, that, it, that is an entire demographic that is completely gone. How simple would it be for you to have childcare at the performance for those parents? How simple would it be for us to evolve our educational system and start teaching our children about these so-called classical arts at the earliest of ages. I always think about my, speaking of debuts, my American debut was at the Dallas Opera in the title role of Tosca. Mm -hmm. And some of those performances were for youth, so children performances. And to this day, I feel as if that was the most important opportunity that I've ever had because it was at Fair Park. So when I say that there were thousands of children, it wasn't just like 30 kids in a small room, thousands, mm -hmm. <laughs> all children in the audience from <laughs> high school as well. So it's not just like little kids, all of them. And when I stopped Scarpia, they cheered. <laughs> 
when I stabbed him again, they cheered even louder. <laughs> and when I stabbed him a third time, they completely lost the gear. They were like, ah! <laughs> I feel like I was at a Beyonce concert. I feel like I was Beyonce, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the sort of visceral response that children or younger audiences can have. But that doesn't happen without the educational part. That doesn't happen without them being introduced to the characters before they even enter the theater. About them knowing about the story, about them seeing who is portraying the story and seeing people who happen to look like them. And Black people singing opera is not just about little Black kids seeing Black people. It's Mm -hmm. about everyone. Little white kids need to see Black people in positions of authority, right? So that they can be celebrated and understand, oh, Yes, they are just as fabulous as I am. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we talk about parenthood, I think we need to open our minds and we need to make sure that we're involving parents in these decisions. Many of the issues that we're dealing with right now is because we're just coming up with stuff that we think other people will like instead of involving them in the conversation and asking them. What sort of things would you need in order to make this an easier opportunity for you? What excites you about being here with your child? I also work with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and they have a wonderful program where they just bring all the little kids in and just touch the instruments. Mm -hmm. That's literally it. (laughs) The instruments are in this beautiful atrium and they go around and they can and all of those things. We're planting seeds, quality seeds. Because I remember my first opera. And when I tell you, Garrett, I was not impressed. I was not <laughs> impressed. <laughs> I was like, this is trash. Why did I want to come and see this? I wasn't even singing opera yet. But I had a fifth grade teacher who loved opera and he loved Alf. Mm. And he made sure that every single student was assigned an opera. And all you did was research the opera, research the story, find out more about it, all of the history involved and the color and the costumes and the dancing and the singing and the sound of the orchestra. Those are all seeds. And we think that the seeds need to be big and grand. They just need to be seeds Mm -hmm. that are consistently nurtured, watered, fertilized, and then they become a huge tree. But if there's no seed in the first place, and anytime someone enters a space, they don't feel welcomed, that, that's a seed that has been burnt down like a forest, right? The yeah. forest is burnt down. And so we just think that we're doing these things for people. Oh, well, this, let's invite the little poor kids to a dress rehearsal. Oh, now we're about to do a real show. Okay, let's usher them out so the rich people don't see them. Mm. And I'm talking about an actual instance. I'm not making this up right now. This is an actual company that I will not mention. (laughs) That's problematic. You've now shown these people that they're not good enough to be here. Anytime they show up, they're questioned about why they're there. I had a donor who went to a performance at a major orchestra that he actually is a major supporter of, and a fellow audience member questioned why he was there sitting in that seat. Hmm. Unacceptable. 
unacceptable. But people do this because they think that opera is so hoity-toity and greater than. And at the end of the day, it's not. It's about stories. It's about people. And it's about touching people and changing lives. Yeah, you're striking a chord with me because when you mentioned your first experience uh, seeing an opera, I thought back to my first time uh, watching an opera. It was a production of La Boheme. And, you know, just as you said, it was a dress rehearsal that we were allowed to come to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to unpack that a little bit more. But when uh, when we talk about all of these culture shifts that need to happen in opera, I wonder how uh, the Mache legacy aims to shift uh, that status quo? I think it's important for us to create new stories, to create stories that highlight who we are and our experiences. We're currently working on Change. It is an opera, it's a grand opera, five series opera that is set in ancient Egypt based on an original graphic novel called O Sahar by my beloved husband, Dr. D. Vincent Thomas Jr. And it focuses on this mortal magi and this divine goddess. They happen to be married. And she's trying to stop the war in her own divine way. And the warrior is like, you know, you're a divine goddess. Do better. (laughs) (laughs) And we see the politics of divinity and humanity. And uh, we're also working on a piece called Black Caesar. Have you ever heard of Blackbeard? I have. The pirate? Right. Have you ever heard of Black Caesar, though? I have not. There you go. Black Caesar was a famous Haitian pirate that sailed with Blackbeard at one point. And so this show, we're trying to incorporate all of these wonderful elements that make us who we are. There's breakdancing, there's hip hop, there are our Orishas and our Yoruba goddesses, all of that, allowing us to understand that we too are grand and in need of celebration. (laughs) I recently ended, well, not ended, I recently debuted a work with the Seattle Opera entitled Maternita. And Maternita is Latin for motherhood. And I was at a point in my life of understanding that me and my experience as a Black mother and a mother of color simply wasn't present in the current classical Estelon when mm-hmm. it came to art song. And so I'm also a songwriter and librettist. And I had written all of these words. <laughs> and then I commissioned beautiful women of color to compose these words. So I have Regina Harris Maiolki, Jasmine Barnes, Barbara Croal, and Carolina Calvace. And we all came together and created these pieces. And I want to continue to create, create at least six more for a total collection of 10. And then I want to publish those and share those so that other people can sing them and have access to them as well. Because that's the key with new work. We talk about developing contemporary opera. Mm-hmm. My problem is that we only develop it to the premiere. And, <laughs> never and then that's it. it. <laughs> that's not how that works. <laughs> the mm-hmm. reason why Verdi and Wagner and Rachmaninoff and Brahms and all of these people are who they are are simply are not simply for their genius of creation, but because they were surrounded by support. Support from people with money, support from their community, 
support from their government, support from the people who actually were the vessels and instruments of their music, and they were allowed to fail time and time and time again Mm -hmm. until eventually we have masterpieces. Do you know how long it took Verdi to create a freaking masterpiece? Not a a day. Yeah. But again, I think it always goes back to community. We are such a transactional, lonely culture in the United States of America. There's this idea that we can pull our own selves up by our bootstraps and all of this other ridiculousness. And as Black people, we understand that we can't do anything without our community. Right. I was talking to my husband the other day about, oh, there's an amazing documentary on PBS right now. Focusing, is it heard it through the grapevine or something like that? Mm. And I was talking about how before the internet, my grandmother would always tell me, you would if you were in Chicago, you knew exactly what was going on in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just this line of communication, this line of community and caring for each other. I would love for us to continue to cultivate that because it's necessary. And that is what has made us who we are. American culture is Black culture. Black culture has influenced and transformed the world. And we need to own that power and understand that none of that would have happened without us coming together and creating it. And when we look back again, on that legacy, you know, even strictly in the in the Western classical arts, you know, we see the Leontine Prices and the Jesse Normans and what they were able uh, to accomplish as performers. One of the missing pieces, I feel like, in our more contemporary culture is that we don't always think about the necessity for for many of us of uh, the the entrepreneurial leg of our careers, in addition to the performance aspect, even the the more activist aligned things that matches with the performance aspects of of our careers. I wonder if you can speak to that. I mean, it it, it certainly would be luxurious if each and every one of us only had to worry about the performance of our art and everything else was taken care of. But unfortunately, that's not our reality. I I wonder uh, how significant it is, in your opinion, to talk about the non-performance aspects of a performance career. It's essential. Because if we're going to galvanize change in any way, we need to be in positions of glory. Mm. And we need to be in positions of power. (laughs) That's the only way it's going to happen. We can sing the grandest of arias, but if we don't have the power to hire the people who are singing with us, what power do we have? Right. And it's important for us to get as much training as possible. It's important for us to have as many connections as possible. Again, community, because we can't do anything without it. But if we are going to make the change that we need to make, we need to be up there leading these major institutions. And we can only do that if we start leading now. Wherever you are, start leading. Start making it known that you want to lead. Start taking advantage of opportunities to lead. Make yourself vocal. Put yourself at the front. And when you put yourself at the front, you know exactly what you're talking about. You've done your homework and people are listening to you and inspired by what you are saying. They have this whole idea of these thought, quote, thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. These people who get paid <laughs> millions of dollars to just share all of these motivational moments. 
why not you? You can do that. We can do that. We're motivating each other all the time. Mm-hmm. Why not? But we have to be bold. And we have to know that we have something to say. And most importantly, Garrett, we have to be consistent. We know all sorts of people who are probably some of the most talented people that anyone will ever meet in their lives at home, sitting on their couch, complaining about the other people who are actually doing it. Yeah. And whether you have an audience of two or an audience of two million, the most important thing you can do is be consistent. That sounds boring. (laughs) That's not flashy. But it's the truth. Yeah, yeah. And what does the good book say where two or three are gathered? I mean, I remember that. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, you've you've motivated motivated me. I don't have a million dollar check for you, though. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Come on now. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you for that. How can folks uh, learn more about you and the work that you're doing out here? You can obviously connect with me on all social media platforms. All you have to do is Google my name and it pops up all of the wonderful ways to get in contact with me. My website, TakeshaMacheKizart.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. So just reach out. Please do. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I have one more question for you, you know, and and, uh, the corners of the career uh, that I exist in, I'm meeting more and more artists, composers, specifically uh, Black women who are coming to the Western classical arts a little later in life. You know, folks who didn't have the conservatory training as uh, late teenagers, but, you know, did eventually get the training and are now diving in. I wonder, you know, what your advice would be to, you know, all of the mothers, all of the parents, all of the, you know, people uh, who I consider elders jumping into this field. What, What advice do you have for them? I always read these stories about people starting careers like in their 50s and 60s. And and there's even an artist who started in her 80s and now she's legendary. Just start. (laughs) (laughs) Just start and be consistent and share. Make yourself known as much as possible. I am very bold in saying that I want to be the leader of a major world-class performing arts institution while I'm still performing and being an amazing wife and mother. And I'm speaking that into my life and to every single conversation that I have. We have to understand that our words have power, but we have to say the words. And then we have to follow them with action Back, I guess I'm reflecting back to the Bible, right? Faith without works is dead. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we can believe all we want and say all we want and do all of the vision boards. But if we don't make concerted effort daily to do something, nothing will happen. So all of these excuses, and I say that they're excuses because the world allows them to be excuses. I'm too old. I'm too dark. I'm too big. I'm too small. I'm too poor. I'm too rich. I'm too whatever. I'm too anything. That is you speaking to yourself. And what do you choose to speak to yourself? I speak love. I speak light. I speak abundance. I speak divine connections. I speak opportunities. 
consistently. And I only invest in those things that line up with what I am seeking. So that's my advice. Keisha Mache Kazart Thomas there in an excerpt from Verdi's La Traviata. Incredible conversation and an incredible voice to match. Thank you so much to Takesha for joining me here on Truloquy. Scott, toward the end there, one of the things that she was talking about when she was speaking to was the power of words, even the power of speaking positively to yourself, speaking to yourself with love. What are your reactions to the idea that what you say has power. There, there's power of manifestation or things uh, uh, being, you know, carrying things with you, even uh, unintentionally, based on what you say, what language you share with your surroundings, even with yourself. What, mm-hmm. do, what, do, what are your ideas on the power of words? Do you believe? Do you believe in that? I do. I do, but you're kind of making me feel a little bit guilty here because when my eyes open up in the morning. I don't have a word that I'm speaking into myself into some better frame of mind. It's like I open my eyes and I go, "Oh no!" So maybe, <laughs> so maybe that could, you know, you talk about not doing New Year's resolutions. Maybe it can be your New Year's resolution to uh, commit every day when you wake up to say something affirming or say something positive. Say something like, "Yes." I get to do it again. Okay. Yes, it's negative 15 outside and I get to spend a day with radar and outside can, freezing freezing my cojones you off, can, you know. <laughs> and you can you can do check-ins, the weekly check-ins. Sure. Sure, sure all of that. I I really do believe in that. I believe in the power of words. When I wake up every morning, I tell everybody, the first my first thought is determination. I know I'm sleepy. And the the human body is going to be sleepy when you get up at 6 a.m. But you know what? I am determined. So I'm going to get up and do what I have to do. So maybe 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 let's try that for the for the new year, finding whatever you need to find to really speak positive positivity into your day every day. You know, I do that with my chanting, of course, but you can you can do that in, in your own way. The point is to. Uh, to manifest greater things, good outcomes based on the power of those words. Are you getting up at six now that you're on break? 
Oh yeah, because the the work over here never stops, and uh, I'm gonna talk about that a little bit actually in the triloquy. Right. So I have some uh, uh, radio programs coming up. Let me see the. I guess the press release won't quite be out when th- when this uh, comes out on Wednesday, but I have a uh, a radio program that's going into syndication. Uh, uh, shout out to WXXI in Rochester and WFMT in Chicago and all of the uh, partner stations. It's uh, Gateways Radio. It shines a light on not only the Gateways. Music music festival, those performance uh, recordings, but recordings in general that uh, highlight black composers and, and black musicians. And uh, one of the recordings, one, one of the uh, albums that I think is in more than one episode, I've just loved it all year since you brought the uh, vinyl of it over here, uh, is uh, the album called Let My People Go featuring the Howard Roberts Chorale. It, mix, it mixes the tradition of the spiritual with African drumming. I think it's really brilliant. So we're actually going to listen to uh, a little of one of those tracks to get us into the final movement. They don't really have necessarily a Christmas themed thing on this album, but one of the spirituals is called Talk About a Child That Do Love Jesus. So I think that's (laughs) close enough to a a traditional Christmas carol of sorts. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to get us into the fourth movement this week. about musical complexity we have that lilted drum happening mm-hmm. we have the general feel of you know if, if i had to put a western uh frame on it something that sounds kind of six eight ish but then you have the singers going into duple so often as they're going up those scales oh my gosh it's an incredible album if you don't know this album please go look it up the album is called let my people go black spirituals African drums featuring the Howard Roberts Chorale. I can't wait for all of the national audience uh, who's going to be tuned into Gateways Radio to uh, hear some of those recordings. It's really incredible. But we're here in the uh, final movement where, uh, you know, we have to speak to, you know, some things that are going on in the world and and be uh, true and real in the process. So, Scott, I was on um, a Facebook page one I, I won't name the page i don't want to put too much uh, of this person's business out there but it's sort of like a a, a community of support this just this, this thing that's put together for folks in uh, arts administration to get advice share mm. stories do all of that and there was an anonymous post uh that i responded to and i wanted to share it here because i think there's some important things to unpack uh the post is basically talking about um uh, this this person is saying that they were unceremoniously released from their organization. I don't know if they were fired or what happened, but it said unceremoniously released. They're asking, is it normal to see website updates 
praising performative changes to sort of take uh, attention away from uh, a termination or whatever it ended up being? Is it normal to see social media marketing that uh, praises the person who comes in for doing the work that, you know, you felt like you did, that they felt like you did? You know, is it normal uh, uh, to streamline operations in a way that gaslights certain perspectives? Um I've, I've read a lot of pain in that. I've, I've read a lot of frustration. But my, what my response was to it was that you really have to let that stuff go. As soon as you turn the page and continue on with your life, you have the opportunity for things to blossom. But if you are just mired down and sticking to you know, this bad situation that uh, has happened to you, no matter whose fault it was, you you are you're spending mind power you're you're spending time and energy mm-hmm. not moving forward you're sort of sticking there my em, my employment karma is a little different than yours I, i've gotten fired from a few jobs mm-hmm. <laughs> i've been liberated from a few jobs <laughs> in my life have you have you ever gotten fired from a job mm-hmm. yeah are I you was st- 21 are you still sore about it <laughs> i was i was over it like three four weeks later okay and, so i didn't take look, no time no and looking at it and going glad i don't have to be doing that so considering how quickly you got over that one termination and where you are in your career now what would be your advice to the person who feels away about having gotten letting go uh having gotten let go from a job or from some, from some opportunity let me say that in the moment i was demolished of course because that was all I had. Yeah. And, and it wasn't really even a money thing. It was the fact that manager was in this bullshit title that I was given, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, the set of responsibilities that I was given, they gave me a title. Sure. Uh, I would tell anybody that just went through what this person is going through is allow yourself to have the feels. Mm. Sit in it. Mm. You know, f- go through it. Just don't linger too long. Right. Because I really think that that's part of it, that part of the recovery is the is the vitriol yeah. and the angst and all that. And if you don't jettison it and you care, you know, talk about carrying stuff. Yeah. If you carry that with you, you're going to be warped. It's, go- it's going to taint your future uh, decisions. Yeah. Yeah. In conjunction with, and it was just weird how, you know, serendipitous all of this was. So in junction, in conjunction with seeing that and trying to offer what I can to, you know, offer encouragement as far as you got to move on. You know, it's fine for you to feel your feelings, but you aren't living your full potential if you're focused on that, if you're stuck in, in that spot. So while offering that advice, you know, I had to test that for myself or, you know, the, the universe has a way of, of making sure that I, I live up to my words. So uh, apparently I, uh, there was a an event, I think maybe black journalists or black content creators um, at my former uh, place of employment. How do I know this? Was I uh, digging around on the website? Was I doing X, Y, and Z? No, I was minding my own business and I got uh, an inbox full of DMs talking about how my name came up at the organization and people, you know, were having my back and asking why I was fired and that was bullshit and, and X, Y, and Z. Apparently it was a moment. Apparently it was a vibe. Mm. So there are all sorts of people who are thinking about Garrett McQueen 
scene again for the first time uh, in a in a little while. Folks from you know the the radio world or folks who are are uh, steeped in in journalism and that sort of thing. And you know what I had to do. You know there were so many DMs. What I ended up doing was just posting on my social media. Look, I'm busy. I am swamped. It is something else out here. But please trust me and understand that I am doing just fine. You know. I think that it's so easy for um, people's own uh, perspectives on, you know, what it means to get fired or released from a job, you know, what situation that will create for them. They often project on other people. And not to say that I'm not just grateful for people to just think about me and making sure that I'm doing okay, but I just, you know, have to make it so clear that my life bloomed and blossomed after each and every time I got fired from a job. Let's not even talk about uh, NPR. When I was fired from uh, a bar, I won't name the bar, down in Knoxville, that is when, you know, that was the last sort of non-arts part-time-ish job that I had. So that allowed me to really focus. You know, I really uh, treasure the the time that I have spent working away from the arts because there are connections, both social and professional, that I still lean on today, mm. you know, that I got from, you know, working in the bar or being an intern at this office or, or, or doing those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I saw that as my opportunity to really focus. That's when I got into radio for the very First time, you know, the first time stepping into a booth and here we are. I have a studio in in, in my place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's folks out here, you know, anyway, I'm I'm not just <laughs> yeah, so let, let me not get in my emotions right now, but <laughs> anyway. I'm just watching. My my point is that I think as we uh you know talk about moving into a new year. We'll we'll have an opus next week, but as we talk about moving into the new year and you know, new beginnings. I think there's something to understanding, contextualizing in our lives, the things that are serving us, the things that are propelling us forward, and those anchors that are holding us back, the chain around our ankles that's keeping us from from moving forward, from from walking forward. I had to do a lot of soul searching. You know, every time I got a a, a fire from any job, certainly, you know, my my last termination. But I think at the end of the day, if, you know, speaking of uh, speaking things, uh, the power of words and manifestation, I think if we are um, loving to ourselves and affirming of ourselves, we don't have time to to worry about what this organization that let us go now is doing or, or how my work is being uh, uh, erased and all that sort of thing. Not to say that I was never there. You know, we all have our emotions where we're all human, but Having gone through something like that, I feel confident in saying that once you push it all to the side, once you just stop thinking about it all, stop caring about it, understanding that it doesn't really matter, your life will absolutely blossom. I do have one request, though, for people. I need people, (laughs) you know, folks talk, folks get in my inbox. I need people to stop saying when it comes to my time at NPR that I did something wrong, you know. Against the rules, outside of protocols, that's one thing. And really, you know, one one day, I don't know, maybe maybe when uh, we're 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 old, and after Triloquy has been gone for a long time, I'll play the audio of my termination because I do have it. I've, I've made sure to record the Zoom call. Um, one of the reasons cited was that I didn't have any remorse; that I just did not feel like I did anything wrong. 
And I still feel that way because, you know, I'm sleeping at night now, getting rest. Um, I have, you know, Gateways Radio will be my fourth nationally syndicated show that's, that was recorded right here in this studio. Triloquy is doing better than ever. I have all of y'all listening. This this don't feel wrong to me. So that's <laughs> that's my request. If you want to have my back when I'm not in the room, if if there's an event, if there's some presentation, my name comes up and, and there's gossip or people saying whatever, please do not contextualize what I'm doing as wrong because, you know, I'm enjoying a, a nice, beautiful two-week break right now. I don't know, Scott, if you have two weeks off uh, this year, but... <laughs> Starting on the 25th, I, I do. Very good. I'm doing just fine. I really appreciate everyone who listens to this. I really appreciate everyone who's in my DMs asking me, you know, how I'm doing and, and checking in. That's really important. I believe in the check-ins and I appreciate every one of y'all. I just need y'all to know that I'm doing fine. Over here at Trillworks Media, the Triloquy Podcast, you know, my job at um, ACO, my uh, collaborations with a number of organizations, it's all good out here. And I and I couldn't do it without y'all. And I need y'all to continue to support not only me, but each other. Let's be affirmative. Let's really milk this holiday season for everything it's got. Be a holly jolly before we jump back into the work in January. And remember that, you know, we can't move forward if we're looking behind us. Thank you so much for tuning in. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We're going to talk about Kwanzaa next week, and I'll see y'all then. Thank you.